Welcome to Out of Zion with Susan Michael, an exploration of the Bible and the land of Israel. From ancient biblical sites to the story behind the stories, join Susan on a journey through the most exciting book on the planet. Hit the subscribe button for future episodes, which will deepen your faith and bring the Bible to life. And now, here's our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there. Welcome back. This is the 3D Jesus series, and this is our final week seven. Today, we're going to talk about the resurrection and the ascension and the return of Jesus. Now, last week, we ended with Jesus, his trial, his crucifixion, and he was put into the tomb before the Sabbath, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. We're going to pick up this week now to talk about um, a couple of items in this story. So Jesus was resurrected from the dead, as we know, and he appeared on earth for 40 days, and he appeared to over 500 people uh, who saw him. And this started a movement. Enough people had seen him, realized uh, that he was resurrected, and that birthed and began uh, the church, which um, really was birthed on the day of Pentecost. But uh, that's how we had hundreds gathered there, 120 gathered in the upper room. So um, let's talk about now, uh, I want to talk about where was Golgotha? Where was Jesus crucified? And where was he buried? Um, when you go to Jerusalem today, you're going to see two different places that somewhat claim uh, to be the, um, the garden or the, the tomb of Jesus. One is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And this church is built over the traditional site all the way back to uh, the early Christians, saying that this was the hill Golgotha and this was the tomb that Jesus was put in. Um, a lot of Protestants and uh, evangelicals don't really like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre because it is run. There's uh, five different stations of the cross inside there, and there's seven different denominations that um, have charge over certain areas of it, and all those denominations are your liturgical churches. So they are Eastern Orthodox and uh, Catholic. And so there is incense, and there's icons, and there's altars, and, and also the church that you go into today is a thousand years old. It's a crusader church, so it's dark, and um, it's just not an inspiring experience, uh, particularly for evangelicals and Protestants. And um, so about 100, 150 years ago, there was a man that looked out his window um, in a nearby area right north of the old city of Jerusalem, and he saw a hill that looked like a skull. And he said, this could be Golgotha. And so they, they looked and they found some old tombs uh, there. And um, so they cultivated it. And uh, there had obviously been a, a nice garden there at one time. And so they 
Really, I think they thought that maybe this was the real tomb of Jesus. But as the years went by and archaeology developed, it's pretty well been proven that the uh, tomb that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is built over is a first century tomb. And um, the other one that's in what we call the garden tomb, um, in a lovely garden and a lovely setting, and you get to see an empty tomb there. It's a wonderful place to hold services and meditation. That actual tomb is from uh, centuries before the, the time of Jesus. So it's not a first century tomb. So um, in last year, they um, actually uncovered, or it could have been two years ago now, they um, uncovered in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for the first time in many years and got down to the first century tomb uh, level, and they were able to verify that it is a first century tomb. So um, more than likely, that is the tomb that Jesus was laid in. And um, so that that church today is inside the city walls, and we know that Golgotha was outside of the city because they didn't execute people inside Jerusalem. They executed them outside the city. But at the time of Jesus, the place where this church is was outside the city walls, and it's in an area that was a known quarry. So uh, the fact that there would have been a limestone hill makes perfect sense. And then uh, tombs nearby, um, it all really makes perfect sense. But when you go into the church, you can't see anything unless you stand in line for a long, long time. And then you crawl down some little hole and you see some little piece of stone. Uh, that's about all you're going to see. For Golgotha, you climb upstairs and go into a place where there's an altar, and under the altar there's a glass, and you can look through the glass and you'll see stone. So supposedly that's part of the top of Golgotha. We do know that Jesus was not crucified on top of Golgotha because the Romans did not execute people up out of sight. They executed people as a warning to others that this is what will happen to you if you disobey. And so they actually executed them along a busy road so that many people would see them. So he would have been executed down below uh, the hill itself. And then um, when he died, taken to what must have been a nearby uh, tomb. So um, the garden tomb, you'll go there when you go with me to Jerusalem. It's a lovely garden with birds singing, and you can really uh, have some prayer time and some worship time. Um, and visualizing a tomb like what Jesus would have been uh, buried in. Now, the Mount of Olives. I also want to talk about the Mount of Olives because... After Jesus was resurrected, he appeared uh, to his disciples and to over 500 people over a period of 40 days. And uh, in Acts chapter 1, it says that he spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God. Wow, we don't have any of those teachings. I would love to hear those teachings and what he was teaching his disciples 
now that he was resurrected, now that they saw who he was, now that they had greater understanding, um, I would love to uh, read or hear those teachings. But we don't have them. And then when his the 40 days had come to an end, um, he is on the Mount of Olives, and he is bidding his farewell to uh, his disciples. And um, now the Mount of Olives, the significance of the Mount of Olives as the place for Jesus's ascension, and also, I believe, the place of his return, because the angels said, you know, uh, he will return in like manner as you see him going. And I believe that that uh, entails also the place, and I'll, I'll come to that in a minute. So the Mount of Olives, because it is uh, right there, it's actually 80 meters higher than the Temple Mount. So from the Mount of Olives, you have this magnificent view of the Temple at that time, of the Temple Mount, of the whole city of Jerusalem. It is really magnificent. We'd love to spend time on the Mount of Olives and do some teaching about this history and about the city of Jerusalem. So um, also, because it's right there facing uh, the Temple, it is a burial site. It's been a burial site for 3,000 years, and there are over 150,000 Jewish graves on the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is first mentioned in connection with King David, and we read about it in, in uh, 2 Samuel 15. And David is being uh, betrayed by his son Absalom, and Absalom has uh, proclaimed himself as king in Hebron. And David knows that he's just going to come up now to Jerusalem and take over and that he's got the loyalty of a lot of the people. And so David is fleeing Jerusalem. And it says that he leaves and he goes through or across the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives and he's weeping. Now, I want you to just remember the story of Jesus, the son of David, coming to the Mount of Olives and looking out over Jerusalem and weeping for the city. Uh, you could say David was a type and a shadow of Jesus. Uh, whatever, you can't make this stuff up. Now, um, Moving on, the uh, book of Ezekiel also has a very, very interesting vision that uh, once again tells about the significance of the Mount of Olives. And in this vision, uh, he sees the cherubim, which are the angels, so these cherubim, and above them is the glory of God. And it says, and then the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of Jerusalem, of the city, and stood upon the mountain, which is to the east side of the city. And so it is believed that the presence of God left the temple at, this, at a certain time when uh, the, the Jewish people had betrayed the Lord, judgment was coming, the city was being taken over, being destroyed. At some point in there that the presence of God left the city, and here Ezekiel sees it leaving from the Mount of Olives. Of course, we Christians consider Jesus to be that presence of God, that the glory of God in Jesus. And so where does he leave from? 
the Mount of Olives. But now, because uh, there's another prophecy about the Mount of Olives, and this is in Zechariah. I'm going to read it to you in a minute. But the prophecy here says that the Lord is going to stand, is going to come and stand on the Mount of Olives. There'll be a great earthquake and it'll be divided uh, the north from the south. So because of this prophecy that the Lord, the Messiah, uh, they believe, the Jews believe, is going to come from the Mount of Olives to the Mount of Olives and then enter the temple from the east gate. And so because of that, they are buried on the Mount of Olives so that they will be the first to be resurrected. And so they're buried with their feet towards the temple and their heads towards the Mount of Olives so that when they are resurrected, they're facing the temple and they just go straight in. Um, so it's a very a significant place in, in the scriptures and for the Jewish people. Now, um, it's from here, the Mount of Olives, that Jesus wept over Jerusalem and he predicted uh, its destruction. But he also predicted uh, the return of the Jewish people when he said that uh, Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So he was predicting um, the Gentiles would rule the city until a certain time in history, in the future, when that time is over. And we've seen that time end in our lifetimes. In 1967, Israel had full sovereignty over all of Jerusalem, over the old city, over the Mount of Olives, over the east side of the city, west side of the city, the whole city came under Jewish sovereignty. That was the day that Jesus was talking about when the time of the Gentiles was fulfilled. It would be back under Jewish sovereignty. Now, he also said to the city of Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, Baruch Haba means welcome. If you go to the home of an Israeli today, they're going to open the door. They're going to say Baruch Haba or Brukim Habaim if you're uh, plural, but it means welcome. So he's saying, you're not going to see me again until you welcome me back. Now, Zechariah 12 through 14 describes these very events that Jesus is alluding to. I want to just read a few passages to you from uh, Zechariah 12. It says, On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all nations, and all who try to move it will be injured themselves. Skipping down. So we're talking about a day of war, a day when the nations come against Jerusalem. And so skipping down now, he says, and, and I will pour out upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look upon me, the one they have pierced, 
and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great. And it says a few lines later, the land will mourn. I believe this is a day of welcoming when the people of Israel look upon the Messiah and recognize him for who he is and they welcome him back because then in Zechariah 13 it says and on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and impurity. It's going to be a one beautiful day. And then in Zechariah 14, it goes on to say, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley. Skipping on down, then the Lord will come. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea. In summer and in winter, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Wow. That is the day that we're all looking for. And we see it all coming together here in these chapters, Zechariah 12 through 14. Now, I want to talk just a minute before I close out this series about um, the concept that the Jews rejected Jesus, and that's why he was crucified. And, and this has been a very, very troubling concept throughout history. And many church fathers uh, taught condemnation and contempt of the Jewish people because of the crucifixion of Jesus. And so I just want to make a few observations here. It's a very uh, uh, complicated issue, but a few observations, if you will allow me. First of all, we've heard the story. It was a handful of Sadducees that sent Jesus to his death. It wasn't the crowds in Jerusalem. It wasn't all the Pharisees. It was a handful of Sadducees on the Sanhedrin. They turned him over to the Romans, and it was the Romans who crucified Jesus. Now, um, he died because of our sin. So there's plenty of blame to go around for the death of Jesus. And, um, and I, I just want to bring that up. And then secondly, I want to talk about all the Jewish people that accepted Jesus because large numbers 
followed him. He was so popular that the, the priests were afraid to arrest him during the holiday. They needed to do it before and before anybody knew about it. And after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, 3,000 in one day were baptized. So there was a large number of people following Jesus. And um, the entire leadership of the early church was Jewish. You know, I am so thankful for the Jews that accepted Jesus because they started the early church. They led the early church. And then as Gentiles started coming into the church, something that they had never, ever expected, they had to grapple with this. They went back to the scriptures and they came to the decision that we Gentiles could come in freely, that we did not have to become Jewish. We did not have to obey the Mosaic law that was put on the Jewish people and that we could come straight to Jesus. And um, I'm so thankful for them. They were, most of them were martyred. They, they sacrificed greatly because of their faith in Jesus. So, I don't know how many rejected Jesus. It was a, a small number, but they were powerful. They had the power. But there were many that accepted him and that followed him and loved him. And I'm so grateful for them because they got the church started and we need to be grateful for them. Now, my closing point, um, what does all this mean for you? Now, I hope Jesus has come alive to you. While I've concentrated on the physical and the cultural and the religious context of Jesus, uh, I hope that he's just kind of come alive for you. He makes more sense. You understand how real he was and how true these stories are about him. But I want to close this series by talking about the meaning Jesus was born into a Jewish world because that was the context that God had prepared for the Messiah. They were the people to whom God had revealed the concept of sin and the concept of blood sacrifice as atonement for sin. They were the people to whom he had promised a Messiah. That's why Jesus came as Jewish it had all been prepared for him. And so he comes into this context. Now, our sins had separated us from a very righteous and holy God who had created us so that we could actually be his family. But we had fallen into sin and there was a barrier between us. So he came to earth as a man, as Jesus, and paid the price for our sins so that we can walk in fellowship with him. You know, I want to liken it to a courtroom. You go in and you are as guilty as everything. You are bound by chains. Uh, you've been brought out of the jail. You know you're guilty. You did it. Whatever this accusation is, you know you did it. You are guilty, and you're just waiting for the judge to say what your sentence is. And the judge looks at you, and he says, Your sentence 
has been paid and he hits the gavel, you are free to go. That's what Jesus did for us. He had paid the price. He did the prison time for us so that we could go free. That's how much our God loved us and loves us today. And that is the price that Jesus paid on our behalf. Now, if you don't yet know Jesus as your personal Savior, and you haven't had that moment of freedom when the chains fall away and you're pronounced you're free to go and you walk free of the burden of sin that you've been carrying, if you haven't experienced that, just ask Jesus to do it in your life right now. Ask him to come into your heart and to set you free and that you will follow him. Your life will never be the same. Jesus will have become totally 3D for you. So that wraps up our series. I have one resource that I want to recommend for you. We link to it down below in the show notes, and it's a book. It's called It Must Be Finished, Making Sense of the Return of Jesus. I highly recommend this book. It talks not just about the return of Jesus, but why Jesus had to leave, why he must return, and ties the whole Bible together in a really, really beautiful way. It will all make perfect sense. So please pick up your copy. It must be finished. Well, that does it for our 3D Jesus series. Come back next time. We're going to start a brand new series I'm very excited about. I ask you to sign up for our emails because we're going to send you an email and announce the next series. Go to outofzionshow.com. Sign up for our weekly email. We're going to send you a link each week to the podcast and give you a little summary of the teaching. We're going to give you links to the resources that we mentioned. And we've got a special announcement next week of our next series. So I'll see you back then. Until then, God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.